My guest today is my old friend, Professor Bernard Carr. And in fact, we met when I was doing the education course at Cambridge in 1978. So that's 45 years ago. And Bernard is the Emeritus Professor of Mathematics and Astronomy at Queen Mary University of London. For his PhD, he studied the first second of the universe, how about that, with Stephen Hawking at Cambridge and Caltech. He then held research fellowships at Trinity College, Cambridge and the Institute of Astronomy before moving to Queen Mary in 1985. He's also held visiting professorships at various institutes in America, Canada and Japan. His professional area of research is cosmology and astrophysics and includes such topics as the early universe, black holes, dark matter and the anthropic principle. He's the author of around 300 scientific papers and the books Universe or Multiverse and Quantum Black Holes. He's very interested in the role of consciousness, regarding this as a fundamental rather than incidental feature of the universe. And he's developing a new physical paradigm which accommodates normal, paranormal and mystical experiences. He also has a long-standing interest in the relationship between science and religion and views psychical research as forming a bridge between them. He's currently president of the Scientific and Medical Network and a former president of the Society for Psychical Research. So welcome, Bernard, to Imaginal Inspirations. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's start with the first question, which is a shaping moment in your choice of work. And you, you have, in a sense, parallel lives because you've got your astrophysics side, but you also you've been active in psychical research. Um, and so there may be more than one shaping moment. That's true. And I should perhaps explain that I'm very interested in what I call the three worlds, the worlds of, of matter, mind and spirit. And I've tried in some sense to play a role and be active in all of these domains. And so with all of your questions, I wasn't quite sure whether which, which domain I should be answering it in. But in this particular question, you're referring to the shaping moment in my choice of work. So I'm going to interpret this to refer to my professional work as a, as a cosmologist. Indeed. And really, I, I can answer that question rather precisely, because when I was an undergraduate at Trinity Cambridge in 1969, there was a BBC documentary, which was called The Violent Universe, which was all about the exciting developments in astrophysics, the discovery of black holes and pulsars and, and quasars and, and things like that. And I remember being enthralled by this programme. But what most struck me about the program, there was a moment when the astronomer Martin Schmidt goes up to Mount Palomar and he looks through the, the telescope to look at a distant quasar. He'd really discovered quasars a few years earlier. And while he was looking, he played some music and the music he played was Beethoven's Sixth Symphony. It was the third movement. Mm. And I was transfixed by that because it sort of combined the scientific aspect of looking at this distant quasar on the other side of the universe with the spiritual aspect of, of Beethoven's music. And, and ever since then, I, I've seen science and spirituality as going together. I, I, there was, a, to me, a spiritual aspect to, to studying the cosmos. And so I decided at that moment, I would first of all become an astronomer. And secondly, I decided I, I would go and buy Beethoven's Sixth Symphony because up until that moment, I only had Beatle records. I got the 
the record the very next day. And then I suppose about two years later, I became a professional astronomer when I, when I did my PhD. Well, that certainly is an epiphany and it set you on a very productive course. So what about influential mentors uh, or teachers, um, probably at Cambridge, I imagine, or maybe even before? Well, again, this depends which of the three worlds you're referring to. In, in terms of the scientific domain, I would have to say the people who most inspired me were my my PhD supervisor, who was uh, Stephen Hawking. I think you mentioned that. And uh, and of course, there have been many other people in my professional field who inspired me and become friends. The other person I would have to mention would be Martin Rees. Indeed. I did some of my early work on the anthropic principle with with Martin Rees. But on top of that, there were many great physicists who, who I met who I didn't know as well as Stephen and Martin, but nevertheless, who I was fortunate to meet and, and have discussions with people like Richard Feynman and, and, and Paul Dirac. And these, of course, were the greatest physicists ever. Legendary. Indeed. Legendary. And, and, and they were completely inspirational as well. I, I won't go beyond that. There's so many people I've been inspired with, including friends um, within the scientific domain. Within the psychic domain, Really, I could go back to my school days. I remember when I was at preparatory school in Lichfield, my history teacher was someone called Manfred Cassira. He was oh, actually really? he was a descendant of Ernst Cassira, the philosopher. Yeah. And I remember outside class, he, he used to tell me that it was possible to be in two places at the same time, but, but that it was very dangerous. And I got intrigued by this, and I guess he was referring to out-of-body experiences. So that sort of whetted my interest. In, in psychical phenomena, I suppose. Another teacher I had at Harrow was someone called David Christie Murray, and, and he taught me divinity. But he, he was also very interested in, in, well, obviously the spiritual side, but also in some psychic phenomena. And I remember I had a, a, lot, a discussion with him about reincarnation. He, he was very interested in reincarnation, and he wrote a book about it later. Yes, indeed, I, got, I read it. Yes. And, and that got me very intrigued. But also, he sort of set an essay, which I, in some sense set me out on the path of my path in life to try and reconcile science and spirituality. So he was he was very influential. When I went to Cambridge, I, I met people in the Society for Psychical Research, in particular, Tony Cornell, who I wouldn't describe him as spiritual, but, but he was one of the, the world's leading ghost hunters. And he got me very interested in psychical research. And we used to go out meeting mediums and, and doing experiments into telepathy and things like that. Later on, I also met Ian Stevenson, who, who was a very inspiring figure within psychical research. Of course, he's well known for his work in reincarnation, but he, he was a real scholar and made me realize that there are people in psychical research who are every bit as as intellectually qualified as the people I was meeting in, 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 in my physics. And then finally, in the third world, in the spiritual domain, again, I, I met many people who were inspired me, even though I didn't know them so well and had a big influence on me. I was very interested in Buddhism. I joined the Buddhist Society in Cambridge. I remember early on, I met Trungpa Rinpoche, and he came to my room. And, and he sat in the armchair, and I was in awe of Trungpa Rinpoche, of course, he was very famous in those days. And after he left the room, I didn't dare sit in this seat for many months, because this is where the great Trungpa had, 
had, had sat. Later on, I met, uh, for example, a John Brown, but he was then only a, 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 a physics student like me. He was then called Pete Betts. He was studying natural sciences. And, and we became good friends because he was also in the Psychic Research Society. But later on, he was much more devoted to Buddhism than me. He became a monk. He went to Thailand. And now he is the leader of the of the Western Australian Buddhist group. He's, he's a, a spiritual leader called now a John Brahm. And he's now got millions of followers. And, and I found him very inspiring. And I went to a conference that was organized in his honor in Perth a few years ago. And uh, they gave me a, a really wonderful time because they knew I was his friend at Cambridge. And I think I was supposed to sort of spill the beans of what he was like as an, undergra as, as an undergraduate. And uh, it was quite strange because in some sense, Ajahn was treated by, with great reverence, rather like a god. Mm -hmm. And in a certain way, I don't like it when people are treated like gods, you know. But, but nevertheless, I discovered that because I was his friend, I was treated like a semi-god. And okay. I decided that it's all right to be a semi-god because they gave right. me a really good time. And then I would say another person who inspired me was someone called Glyn Davis. And he was a great expert on Kabbalah. And he set up a, a, a philosophy, religious philosophy group called Saros, which was very influential. So that's quite a long answer, but because there's so many people who inspired me in the three domains. But they're just a few of the names anyway. Well, I, I think that's very interesting, precisely because you're going across these three domains. And uh, if I can remind you, I think you were instrumental in organizing a lecture by Fritjof Capra. Uh, absolutely. In, in Cambridge. That, absolutely. And uh, of course, Fritjof, he was a, a physicist interested in matters mystical. He'd written his famous book, The Tao of Physics. And I did organized that meeting. I forget, it was around about 1978, the time we met. It was. And, it was uh, May, April or May 78. And I remember the occasion vividly, and I think it was warm enough that you had to open the window onto Trinity Street. Um, oh, right. Was, I think uh, that you, you have a far better memory than me, but it was a, yes, I remember that was a very special meeting. Well, it made a, it made a great impression. And I'll just put a little anecdote in here, because I, I like this one from Fritjof, when he was talking to Krishnamurti, and he said, how do I reconcile myself as a scientist and as a human being? And Krishnamurti said to him, you're a human being first and a scientist second. And I always think that's rather a good response. That, that's absolutely right. Yes. Yeah. So I think it applies to all of us. And mm. then moving on, Bernard, I imagine there's quite a few books that have, have shaped your life and thinking. And you're able to uh, tell us one or two of those. Well, of course, there are hundreds of books, David, but yes. I have to say probably a tiny fraction of the books that you have and that you have read. But I think in answering this question, I, I, I'm going to answer it in a rather precise way because there are three particular books. Okay, good. That set me off on my, on my life's mission, if you like. And the background to this is rather interesting because when I was at Harrow, I was 15 years old and I was confined to my room as a punishment. I won't go into the details of the transgression, but that meant that I couldn't leave my room except for lessons. And during this period, I had nothing to do except read. And I read three books. And these three books were The ABC of Relativity by Russell. And this yeah, got me interested in one. the nature of space and time and physics. I read An Experiment with Time by J.W. Dunn, which was about his precognitive dreams and his theory of time 
to explain them. And that got me interested in psychical research. And, and the third book was called The Third Eye by Lobsang Ramper. And he was allegedly at least the uh, a Tibetan Lama who taken over the body of a, a Cornish fisherman. Now, I, I, I think now I'm maybe a little bit skeptical of, of that account. Nevertheless, it got me fascinated in the link between, well, Tibetan Buddhism and, and mystical and religious ex and psychical experience, because he, he talked about those. And, and now I've always seen psychical research as forming a sort of link between uh, science and religion, but but that book in particular got me interested in, into into religious experience. And when I went up to Cambridge, I, I immediately joined the the Astronomical Society, the Psychical Research Society, and the Buddhist Society. And so those three books really triggered my interest in 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 if you like matter, mind, and spirit. Very neat. Me, at least were, were <laughs> physics, psychical research, and and well buddhism at that time but later on more general forms of religious experience and at, at trinity did you know um cd broad at all because he he was sort of resident in the great court i think well david i overlapped with cd broad in fact he lived in the rooms above the great gate which uh, newton had once occupied and Oddly enough, Broad was one of my heroes because he was a philosopher who was very interested in psychical research. He was the president of psychical, psychical research. But in particular, he was a great expert on things like time, which were subjects that fascinated me. Now, one of my great regrets in life is that I didn't actually ever get to speak to him. I was rather awed. You know, I was just a young undergraduate. I, I think he died just maybe the second year of my undergraduate mm. career. I never actually got to meet him. Uh, and I always regret that because nowadays I read his books and there's so much I want to talk to him about. However, I do remember when I was uh, I was interested in psychical research, as I explained, and, and I knew Alan Gould. And Alan Gould once was um, he used to investigate mediums and allegedly C.D. Broad had come through one of the mediums. Oh. And they wanted to know if this really was C.D. Broad or just uh, this medium playing around. And the crucial question was, did C.D. Broad wear spats? <laughs> because okay. if he wore spats, this would be evidence that maybe it really was C.D. Broad. I was asked to find out whether he wore spats. And I think the answer is that he did. Because he came <laughs> of a generation of people who wore yeah. spats. But that doesn't really prove it was C.D. Broad. Because the, the, the point is, when you go and visit these mediums, in my view, at least, you never have a definite, I mean, C.D. Broad himself said that he would be very surprised if he survived death. So I don't think C.D. Broad himself did believe there would be survival. But when you go to mediums, it's never quite clear whether the information really is coming from the, 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 the mind of the departed or whether the medium is getting the information from elsewhere. But that was I, never in the physical world, at least, did I ever meet C.D. Broad, though I was well aware of him. No, well, I, I find his lectures on psychical research, which I read a long time ago, absolutely seminal. So let's go on to um, the next question, which is about um, any key moment of insight in your work, um, particularly with respect to the nature of consciousness. Obviously, in my professional work, and sometimes I pay to have insights, I guess, within my professional work. There's quite a lot of it. But obviously, I work with Stephen Hawking, which was very inspiring. And most of my work is in, in astronomy has been connected with what are called primordial black holes and, and 
We still don't know for sure whether they existed, but this is the subject I worked on with Stephen Hawking. And, and in a certain sense, we uh, we founded the field. So we still don't know if they exist. If if they do exist, that that's, I'm lucky because I will have made an, played an important role. If, if they don't exist, then maybe I've, I've in some sense wasted some of my life. But that's the thing about science. You often don't know whether something is is right or wrong. But I could say a lot about that, but I, just to say the very first problem Stephen set me was to see if certain equations had a solution which would allow primordial black holes. And to cut a long story short, I remember struggling with these equations for a, a whole week trying to solve them and finally was able to solve the equations which said that primordial black holes could exist. And I rushed excitedly to Stephen's office and said to explain to Stephen that these primordial black holes could exist. But I remember being very deflated to find that Stephen, who was already in a wheelchair, had come to the same conclusion oh. by doing the same calculation in his head. And of course, okay. I was disappointed by that because I wanted to get there first. However, that was really the start of my career in, in physics, if you like. However, I think you're probably more interested in, in, in the, my work in the domain of consciousness. And what I can say there is that Again, when I was, I forget the exact age, but it was when I was at school, maybe 16, 17, I had already got an interest in, in physics and psychical research. And I suddenly realized that the link, it became like a flash, the link between physics and these other experiences had to involve higher dimensions, a higher dimensional space. And really, I was so excited by this, I sort of wrote a hundred page book. I would spend all my spare time writing this book. And um, it was going to be revolutionized cosmology, it proved God. It was incredibly pretentious. Of course, I never published it and rather embarrassed in retrospect. However, it was that flash, which was the my inspiration in a way for the rest of my life. I was fascinated in physics, but I wanted to expand physics to accommodate consciousness, and all these exotic phenomena, psychical and mystical phenomena. And I was convinced that this could be done through a higher dimensional model, which is, I think, you know, is what I'm still pushing today. Indeed. Now, the only trouble is I didn't have the background physics or anything to sort of justify this model. And so in a way, I, I then became a professional physicist so that I could be in a better position to expound such a model. Now, I'm still pushing this model. I still don't really understand it, but I, I still passionately feel that this is the best hope for a post-materialist paradigm, which is... Which yes, is I, I very much agree with that. And I think you're, you're I, I hope you're, you're going to write your magnum opus, um, you know, to explain all this, because well, I know I, you did your presidential address, I think, for the SPR was, was a, a, I think, a summary of where you were at that point. Uh, which is quite a long one, because I think it was published in the proceedings, as far as I remember. Yes, it was 100 pages, yes. <laughs> so uh, there's your 100 pages. version book. of my presidential address. Well, David, I, I have published my theory in various places, mainly in book chapters, and of course I've given many talks on the subject, but I've not published it in any of the mainstream journals, because first of all, I don't think I could ever get it published in a mainstream physics journal. So by and large, not too many people are aware of what I do, my, of my particular idea. And, I, and I'm not too worried about that because I know most of my physics colleagues would think it would be crazy anyway. And in some sense, I'm very happy to burrow away on this theory on my own and uh, w without necessarily wanting to 
convert the world that is right. I mean, I, I know a lot of my even people in the spiritual domain are rather skeptical of this this approach, and I don't really mind. I, I, I'm sometimes skeptical of it myself, but eventually, before I pass on, I certainly do want to put this in into the more into the public domain. And in some sense, the ideas are already in the public domain because other people say similar things. And that's why I think the post-materialist science movement is so important. I, I see this as really part of the work of the post-materialist science academy. Yes, and I, I think it's, it's always struck me as curious that you can invoke further dimensions in physics, but you're not allowed to do it so far as consciousness is concerned. The bizarre uh, thing, David, is that many of the things I work on in physics are just as speculative and just as exotic as the ideas I work on in psychical research and spiritual studies. I mean, you know, the multiverse, the fine tunings, black holes, wormholes, time machines, all these things are crazy. And of course, everybody knows quantum theory is crazy. So, and, and of course, there's the higher dimensions, which as you say, they arise in normal physics. So in some sense, physics itself is crazy, if you like, in the sense that it is completely remote from our common sense experience of reality. And, and I personally take the view that there being many paradigm shifts, that the, the next paradigm shift will have to take into account consciousness and the whole domain of mind. And that's what I th think is, is really crucial. But coming back to the three worlds, there's really two steps. First of all, you want to expand physics to accommodate mind and consciousness. And I think that's relatively un uncontroversial now. I mean, even great physicists like Penrose will will say that's the case. And you have, obviously, you developments in, in artificial intelligence and, and computer science and, and obviously in neuroscience, psychology itself, indicate that science will be expanded to accommodate mind. And in particular, psychical research says there's an interaction between consciousness and the physical world. That's the key message. I think what is more controversial is the attempt to expand science to accommodate the spiritual domain. Mm. And mm. I personally feel that that is the case, that you will be able to expand science to accommodate the spiritual domain. But not everyone accepts that. And, and there are even people like Ravi Ravindra who will argue very strongly that science will not accommodate spirituality. So so yes, I, it very much depends on your understanding of science and spirituality. Absolutely. Um, it all comes down to what you mean by science and spirituality. But nevertheless, that's that's my key dream, to accommodate all three worlds with this new paradigm. Well, it's a, it's a great aspiration. And then moving on, Bernard, um, how does your understanding of consciousness influence the way you live your life? Well, that's interesting because I have to say that I... I I don't really regard myself as a very advanced spiritual being. I mean, I, I, I meditate, but I, I realize I'm not going to attain enlightenment in this life. And compared to some of my spiritual friends, I feel I'm rather third rate. And uh, I feel my main role is, that, as I say, is to, is to have this paradigm which will, in some sense, legitimize spiritual reality. But this, the interesting question is, does a theory of of the spiritual make you more spiritual i don't think it necessarily does in a certain sense i think it can block spirituality 
because I'm a scientist, if I'm having a, an anomalous experience, my mind gets to work and starts thinking, how can I explain this? And that immediately stops the spiritual okay. experience, you know. And so I don't think I'm a good example of a very spiritual person, although I'm obviously very interested in spiritual spirituality. And I know a lot of very spiritual, spiritually evolved people. And I like to think some of their spirituality rubs off on me. Like Trungpa Rinpoche. Like well, I think it's, it's it's but it's really a question of living by spiritual values. That's what I would, you know, talk about. Abso absolutely, yeah. And and I don't think of myself as a particularly kind. I mean, there's a lot of emphasis on love, you know, in the SMN and things. And I, I don't think of myself as a terribly loving person in the sense that I'm filled with love with humanity. So, in that sense, I think I'm a bit of a failure. But what I would say, however is that I do think my belief, if you like, in, in this expanded view of consciousness and the connectedness of my belief in things like survival has a big influence on how I live my life. Um, for example, in some ways, I think in all these three domains I've talked about in, as, as the science and as the mystic and as the psychical researcher, I don't think I've been very successful. I mean, you know, I've, I've made a living, but I'm not I don't, I'm not at the level of Stephen Hawking. I'm not at the level of the Dalai Lama. So in some sense, I don't think I've, I've achieved very much in any of the three domains, but it doesn't really worry me because I always think to myself, it's okay, I'll do better next time. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be enlightened in this life, but I, I can do it in the next life because I really do believe that this isn't the only time I'm, I'm here. You know, what? maybe that's a delusion, but that's at least how I tend to react. And the other thing I find is that because of this connectedness, because I believe I'm part of humanity, that this higher level of consciousness, if you like, I don't feel any rivalry with other people. I find if I if someone else has some, achieved something great, like Stephen Hawking, I feel a certain affinity with that. I feel, well, that's fine. I take pride in the fact that other people have achieved great things because we're all connected. So it doesn't really bother me if I personally haven't achieved something because I think, well, it doesn't matter. I'm I'm connect my friends and humanity as a whole have, have made great achievements, and I feel a pride in that, a sort of collective pride. Well, so I that's think that's thing. yeah, I think that's very um, <clears throat> um, heartening, and I think your role um, is really the bridge building role, um, and that that's the key, I think, to what you've been saying: this matter, mind, and spirit. Um, and that in itself is 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 a unique contribution. Uh, to, I, you, you put your finger on it, David. To me, it's building bridges is crucial. That the bridge between matter and mind, which is psychical research, the bridge between uh, mind and spirituality, which, if you like, is transpersonal experience, and of course, the bridge between science and 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 religion. So, and, then, all, and, and to me, all of those bridges are absolutely crucial. But but what I've also learned is that building bridges doesn't make you popular because when you build a bridge, you tend to be attacked by people on either side. So when I build, talk about psychical research as a, a bridge between science and religion, scientists don't like it because they don't believe in, in the phenomena. And the spiritual people don't like it because they don't really want to reduce the phenomena to, to science because it becomes too reductionist. Nevertheless, I feel it's important. I feel that I feel is what, the scientific and medical network is involved in as well building the bridges and even if it's painful 
it, it's it, it's like the famous picture of the scream, you know, where the the, the, the person on the on the bridge who's screaming because uh, it's it's a painful place to be, but it's it's the pain you've got to suffer because it's really important to to build those bridges. Yes, this was very much an image that Max Payne used uh, mm. as well. You'll remember, and then just uh, coming towards the end, um, Bernard. Is there anything else? Any other experience you'd like to mention before we go on to proverbs and? When you talk about experiences that change or shape my life, I mean, obviously, there are lots of individual experiences. I mean, David, you you edited with Marjorie Willicott the book on spiritual awakenings. And actually, I, I contributed a chapter there where I talked about the various experiences I have had, which really got me interested in this whole field. And... Uh, I, I would regard those mainly as psychic rather than spiritual experiences, but but they were nevertheless very important to me in my life because they are what have really powered my interest in psychic and spiritual matters. I think you'll find people who are interested in these subjects are interested in them because they've had experience. Now, I must say, I, I don't want to talk about my particular experiences, first of all, because it, yeah, there isn't time, but but also I have to say in general, I don't like talking about personal experiences. For various mm. reasons, I feel they're very personal. The experiences, any spiritual experiences, I feel are very personal, which I would only talk about to a spiritual teacher. Somehow, there always seems to be an element of showing off when you start talking about one's mystical experiences, and and of course, my physics colleagues will merely in, infer that I'm a bit crazy anyway. But the other thing I think, which is most important, I've always felt that talking about spiritual experiences probably stops them happening. Yes. And to be honest, that's one reason why I had taken thoughts about whether to contribute to your book, Spiritual Awakening. But I'm glad I did, because um, I think the pluses of coming out of the closet, so to speak, outweigh the minuses. And I think that's so important that we are. That book was so important because it, it showed that there are many people who have these experiences. There's a commonality which validates them. And so I'm really glad I contributed to that book. I think it's such an important book. So I would like to congratulate you and Marjorie on that. You got me to come out as well as many other people. Well, I um, think that was also what Salaster Hardy was trying to do, you know, when he set up the Religious Experience Research Unit, that to, to legitimize and validate um, the importance of these experiences and then how they expand your notion of reality. Absolutely. And uh, in fact, I I would say to me, what is so important about these experiences is that they convince me, first of all, that consciousness isn't just generated by the brain. That, you, you know, I, I tend mm -hmm. to adopt the sort of filter theory of consciousness, that consciousness merely operates through the brain. But also, above all, it, it convinces me, these experiences convince me there's a higher level of reality which goes beyond the normal materialist reality, which so many scientists assume is all there is. I mean, obviously, the people who are going to read hear this podcast are probably already convinced of that. But to me, that is why these experiences, they've shaped and changed my life because they convinced me there is this higher level of reality. And because I'm a physicist, I want to try and expand physics to accommodate that higher level of reality, even though I realize many of my friends in the spiritual domain aren't interested in, in doing that. I think it's important for me personally. No, absolutely. And 
And then coming coming on to the last couple of um, questions, Bernard, do you, do you have a proverb you live by or a, a particular quote or quotes that you, well, you like? Let me, I'll tell you an interesting coincidence, David, because when I, I just come back from Trieste and I was visiting ICTP, which is a big physics centre founded by Salam. And I, when I was in the library, I saw this, there was a framed picture of a quote from Einstein. I thought, Wonderful. I must quote this. I must use this quote when David asked me this question. Well, would you believe this? When I got back and read your, your email, the quote is precisely the one you, you've given at the top of your, your email, the one about Einstein's quote about imagination and knowledge. Ah, Imagination is more important than knowledge. For knowledge is limited, whereas imagination embraces the entire world stimulating progress, giving birth to evolution. And so I've regarded that itself as a rather nice synchronicity. The, the quote I've chosen is already there in your notes for this interview. So that's not my quote. But I do want to quote another saying of Einstein. Einstein, of course, was one of my, my heroes, but uh, also I'm a cosmologist. So I wanted to use a quote which relates to, to the universe. And the quote I like is this. He says, two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. And I'm not sure about the universe. <laughs> no. Of course, the universe, no. there's a technical question about whether the universe goes on forever or whether it's closed like a hypersphere. But it's it's this remark about human stupidity, which uh, he is sure that's infinite. And, and, and that does fascinate me because human beings, I have the impression that the individuals can be very smart. But the larger the collection of people, the more stupid the behavior, you know, so that you get to you, you look at the, the countries and they're slaughtering each other in their millions, you know, in the world wars. You look at the world and the planet's destroying itself unless we do something about it. And so I'm fascinated both in the, the question of whether the universe is finite, which is a question in the first domain in the domain of physics and in the question of human stupidity and whether that's infinite and, and, it, and it does seem hopefully it isn't infinite and hopefully wisdom will ultimately prevail prevail i've got another quote i rather like which is a Sikh saying mm -hmm. it's simply if you can't see god in all you can't see god at all ah oh, very nice now, i don't know that one but that's a very yeah, good I, and to one. me it's true because it's I, I've never liked this God of the gaps, you know, that God is in between the things you can't explain. God has to be everywhere, not only in the domain of spiritual experience, but to me, God has to be in the physical universe. And so when people say, do you see evidence for the divine in cosmology? I would say yes. I would say the universe is sacred, just as the mind is sacred and just as the spirit is sacred. And so I Very like good. that. And yes, I've got uh, another little saying, which I quite like, because it, 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 it relates to my fascination in time, which is, and I don't know who said this, but the, the remark is, life is lived forward, but can only be understood backwards. Schopenhauer. Oh, thank you, Schopenhauer. I can... Schopenhauer <laughs> said that. No, I, 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 it's one of my favourites too. And then, Bernard, any advice you'd give your younger self? Well, what I found in life is that whatever plans you make, things tend to go in other directions. And so much sense in life tends to depend on synchronicities, chance meetings. And at the end of the day, most of my direction of life has been 
determined by chance encounters with people who had a big influence, chance encounters with books, chance encounters with an idea and a talk. And it's so hard to anticipate what's going to, what direction life is going to take. So all I would say is to, to my younger self, don't plan things too much, just let it happen. And what is needed will happen and you'll meet the person, you'll come across the idea which is needed. Have faith. Is so go, go with the flow and trust life. Go with the flow and, and trust life. Don't make too many plans, you know, because God laughs at those who make plans. Very good, Bernard. Thank you so much for being my guest on Imaginal Inspirations. Thank you, David. It's been a great pleasure.